And this is from the 22nd chapter of Genesis. It's quite a long story, so I'll read, uh, so, uh, uh, recite selected verses from the story of Abraham uh, taking his son and binding him on Mount uh, Moriah, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 22. Sometime later, the Lord tested Abraham, and he said, Abraham, here I am, Lord. I want you to take your son, your one and only son whom you love, to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain that I will show you. So when they had reached the place that God had talked about, Abraham prepared an altar and arranged the wood. He put Isaac on the altar on top of the wood, and he took his, in his hand a knife with which to slay his son, and suddenly an angel of the Lord said, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, said Abraham. Do nothing to your son. Do not harm him, for now I know that you fear God, for you would not withhold your son, your only son. And then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. When I was growing up, there used to be those annoying pauses when you were trying to watch television that would come from time to time. The screen would uh, go blank, and then a symbol would come on. You'd hear a high-frequency noise, and then you would be told, this is a test. This is only a test of the emergency broadcasting network. But it was good to have that announcement because at least you knew what was going on in an otherwise confusing situation. I think Abraham would have been very fortunate if he would have had that announcement before God ever spoke to him. This is a test. This is only a test because the scripture in chapter 22 verse 1 tells us but doesn't tell Abraham. And then he gets this most unusual and difficult request. I want you to take your son, your one and only son to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. How difficult, how bizarre that must have seemed to Abraham. He'd waited 25 years for the son. And now the son was growing up and he was asked to give the son back as a sacrifice. It was not only difficult on Abraham, it must have been difficult on Sarah as well. One of the interesting things is right after this story concludes in chapter 22, uh, verse 21, you go over to chapter uh, 23, verse 1, and we're told Sarah lived to be 127 and she died. Now, one of the things that uh, rabbis said for centuries was that actually what happened was Abraham got home uh, with the boy and told Sarah what happened, and she said, you did what? And dropped dead on the spot. Well, the Bible doesn't say that. We don't know that for sure, but how difficult it must have been also for Sarah. How difficult it is for us, and we're not even a part of the request as we try to make sense of this very bizarre and seemingly cruel request that God makes of Abraham. Uh, a leading church theologian of more than 100 years ago, after wrestling with this passage, he finally came to this conclusion. When I come to the story, he said, all is dark, I don't understand it. Well, I think I would join him in that, because some of the explanations that I've heard over the years haven't been particularly helpful to me. I remember in seminary when I went, and even for some years after, one of the things that theologians talked about was that this story was a story of divine child abuse. 
And the story sort of picked on God. How could this God, our God, ever ask a father to do that to a son? And, and how terrible for the, it would have been for that son, even if he escapes as he grows up and always wonders if his dad's around the corner with a knife again. That wasn't a helpful explanation to me. As I continued to study and wrestle with this passage, I noted that uh, some people uh, argue that basically what the story is about is God is teaching Abraham, and therefore the people of Israel, that we don't sacrifice children to God, that our sacrifice is, uh, at this stage, animal sacrifice. And at some level that makes sense, but Walter Brueggemann and other great uh, Old Testament theologians argue that that that, uh, while child sacrifice certainly uh, existed in Canaan, and we know uh, stories in the Bible of people who wanted a favorable outcome in battle uh, or or wanted rain or fertility would sacrifice their children to uh, gods. On the other hand, uh, scholars say actually animal sacrifice probably existed long before Abraham in these pagan tribes. So they don't find that a helpful explanation. So quite frankly, I raised the question for you this morning and tell you, I don't really know the answer. I don't know completely what's going on here. But I know that what the Bible says is this is a test. This is a test. And so maybe one way into the passage is to say, well, who's being tested and and what's being tested? Well, the Bible says, obviously, Abraham's being tested. what is, what is being tested about Abraham? What needs to be learned? What does God want to know? Now, I need to digress real quickly. For um, those of you who, many of you haven't heard my lecture on the differences between the way Hebrews uh, think and process and the way uh, we Westerners and Greeks do. When Hebrews talk about knowledge, it's never head knowledge. For God to know something is for God to experience it. For us to know something, it's for us to experience it. So, in other words, if you know that God exists up here and you have certain beliefs about God, that doesn't really mean biblically that you know God. You must experience God, be in relationship with God. So one of the things about a test is God wants to experience something from Abraham. Well, what is that? Well, one possibility, uh, said a scholar who's very famous in the late 70s and early 80s of the last century, said that what God uh, is testing is to see whether... Abraham actually understands this child is a gift from God and not a reward for Abraham's many years of patient faithfulness. And at some level, that makes sense for, uh, for me because I think a lot of us have an idea that if we do certain things God asks us to do, well, then God, God owes us. And, and God ought to, in return, do certain things for us. But then that makes life something that we earn or that we merit. And the biblical, I think, understanding of life all the way through, and it's being taught again to Abraham perhaps today, is that life is always a gift. There's, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not uh, trying to get involved in a political issue, but there's really no such thing as planned parenthood biblically. I mean, everything is a gift. Look at Sarah is barren, and, and then later um, Rebecca's barren, and then later Rachel and Leah are barren, and, and all these mothers of the promised children, all their, all their births are pure gift from God, pure intervention from God. And so does Abraham understand that this child belongs to God, not to Abraham? Maybe that's being tested. Could be. There's a first cousin of that that says what's being tested here is does Abraham understand that he is not in control, that God calls the shots in life, not Abraham. And so if God gives you something, God can ask for it back. 
because God is in fact in control. And, and for our betterment, uh, we find out normally, but that God always makes uh, the call. Job, I think, uh, said something like this in the wonderful story of Job. Job goes through a terrible time, loses lots of, uh, of possessions, loses precious people. And Job's comment at one stage, you'll recall, is the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. That's or, does Abraham understand that's how it works? That's what some people say is being tested. I don't know. Here's what's interesting to me. Abraham never asks What's going on here? Is this a test? Do you really mean this? What possible reason could there be for me to do this? We may want an explanation, but Abraham never seems to want one. Eugene Peterson brought that home to me, and and I started thinking about it, and he describes Abraham's life as a life where God is always asking Abraham to do something, and Abraham is always saying, here I am, and he does it. So Abraham is told by God out of the blue, get up and leave your father's country and go to a place that I'll show you. Doesn't even tell him where. So Abraham gets up and goes. Gets settled in a place and God says, get up and go. Uh, is in Shechem and Bethel. God makes him leave. He's uh, later in Beersheba. God makes him leave. Uh, last week, our story was about Abraham's other son, that, who Abraham loves very much, Ishmael. And God says, let Ishmael walk out the door and his mother with him. I'll make of him a great nation. You just let him go. And every time God asks something of Abraham, Abraham does it. Peterson says the problem when people like me come to this passage is we treat it as an isolated story rather than another event in a long series of events where God asks, Abraham obeys, and Abraham finds out that whatever God asked made things better in the long run. Is that possible why Abraham says something very strange? And I, I didn't recite this for you, but um, before they head up the mountain, Abraham's got some servants with him, and he and Isaac are getting ready to go up the mountain, and Abraham apparently turns to the servants and says, uh, we're going to go up and worship, and we will be back. We will be back. Does Abraham know that whatever is going to happen in this bizarre request, that God will do something amazing with it, because God has always done that before. I don't know. Uh, some of you know I take Hebrew, and I'm like the dunce of the Hebrew class. So this is not for me. This is from people who really know it. They say in chapter 12, when God asked Abraham to leave his country, that the way it's phrased in Hebrew is almost like saying, go, go for yourself. In other words, Abraham, if you take this journey, it will be a real blessing to you. And the same scholars say that when he says, take your son, your one and only son, that in the Hebrew there's almost a sense of, take your son, please. If that's the case, neither of these requests from God, which seems so strange to our ears, get up and go to a strange place, take your son and sacrifice him, are orders, but almost invitations. That do this, and almost, usually with an invitation is usually implied and something will happen. And Abraham's lived a life where he does it, even if it doesn't make sense, and something indeed wonderful does happen. Maybe that's going on. All I know is that Abraham doesn't seem to need the explanation that I need. And I began to think, you know, the person being tested here in the story is not just Abraham. The person being tested here is me. This is almost like a um, spiritual Rorschach test. You know, I, I look at this request and it's a big blob, but what do I see in it? And I guess maybe what I see is it a God that is 
stern and I don't understand? Is it that, do I see a story of somebody who, ought to, who deserves a better explanation than this? Or do I see in it a God who knows all and loves all and that I can trust no matter what the request is? I mean, what am I seeing? I, Abraham doesn't need the explanation. I do. It's interesting to me, it was noted by a theologian more than 50 years ago, he said, that life is essentially a series of events that we live through. It's not a series of riddles that we solve. So if you have to understand everything completely in life before you take a step, before you do it, if you need to know everything about what it is to have children before you have children or everything that's going to happen in your marriage before you get married, it's not going to happen. If you need to know everything about what God is asking and why before you do it, it's not going to happen either. Sometimes you don't understand until after you do what God has asked you to do. And Abraham will come to understand in a new way, and God will come to understand something about Abraham, but Abraham will also understand something about God when Abraham looks in the thicket when this is all over and sees the ram. And remember, one of the comments he makes is that this place he's going to call, well, you don't remember, I didn't recite it, I'm sorry. sorry. He calls this place the place where the Lord will provide. This is what Paul said to the Corinthians. God's not going to test you beyond what you can handle. And if God tests you, God will always give you a way to get through it. In testing, we learn something about Abraham, but we learn something about God. Maybe we learn something about ourselves. And then there's this other one, Isaac. You know, I never really thought much about Isaac. I've thought Isaac's four years old. They tie him up, and he goes where his dad does, and he, God, um, excuse me, his, his dad forces his will upon him. But it's very interesting. From chapter 21, just two chapters ago, when the, when the child Isaac is born, till chapter 23, verse 1, when Sarah dies, it's 37 years. When Sarah dies, Isaac's 37 years old. So how old is Isaac? when he's walking up the mountain with his father. Some scholars say he's 37 because the next thing that happens is Sarah dies. Josephus, from whom uh, we know so much about uh, early Judaism uh, because he wrote about it to the Romans, Josephus said Isaac was 25 years old. That's That's an interesting picture of a boy or a young man that's willing to let his father tie him down, put him on top of wood, Get out the fire and get out the knife. Well, let's say for a moment that he's just five years old. You know, I had a five-year-old escapee one time, 8.30 service, getting ready to uh, baptize uh, a kid. He's five years old. And he bolts straight out the east doors. So we have to go get him and bring him back. Even a five-year-old has to be somewhat willing to submit to what's going on here. I don't think Isaac's five. I think Josephus may be right. He may be in his 20s. But he willingly submits. He trusts his father enough that even if he doesn't understand it, he'll go through it. And his father trusts the Heavenly Father enough that even if he doesn't understand it, he'll go through it. And you know where this all took place? It's a place called Mount Moriah. You know where Mount Moriah is today? It's Jerusalem. It's the place where the, uh, the temple was, uh, and now it's the place of the Dome of the Rock. Is, so if you see Jerusalem's you know, picture of a big uh, dome, 
there. And on the rare occasions they let uh, Christians in, if you can get in, you'll see that a little bit like Plymouth Rock is, um, uh, in New England is sort of, it's got a little shelter above it and it's got a, it's kind of cased in and it says, you know, this is Plymouth Rock. In the same way, there's a, a casing over a, a, a bare piece of rock and it is the traditional spot where Abraham tied up Isaac. What's interesting is it's not very far from that spot. There's another place that in the Bible is called Golgotha, Calvary. And what happened 2,000 years after Abraham, close to that spot, was this. A father gave up his son, his one and only son. A son willingly let himself be tied up and carried off. be sacrificed. Have you ever wondered if God loved you? Have you ever wanted to put God to the test and say, if you really love me, you'd do... The Bible says that 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years before us, 2,000 years after Abraham, God put God's own self to the test. God said, this is how much you, I love you. I will give you my son, my one and only son. And the son said, this is how much I love you. I will willingly let myself be tied up, bound, and sacrificed. Uh, my good friend and disciple Scott Hare points out that in Genesis, in chapter 22, is the first time in the whole Bible the word love shows up. The son, your one and only son whom you love. And it's interesting that in Jesus' day, one of the ways they interpreted scriptures, the first time you find a word or a phrase in the Bible, it always, always heavily dictates and influences what a word should mean the rest of the time it's used in the Bible. So that any time you and I ever see the word or hear the word love in the Bible, immediately we are supposed to think of a father who would give up willingly his son. That's love. You can learn a lot about Abraham in the story. You can learn a lot about Isaac. You can learn a lot about yourself. But most of all, we learn about a God who loves.